This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger has been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Happy New Year. Con Giovanni, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. It's the history of the Tottenham. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. Well, we're 20-odd games into the season and the table has taken some kind of shape. It's rough around the edges, sure, but the pieces are all vaguely near their final resting places. While everything is still to play for, who knows what twists and turns await us. Hello and welcome to the Total Football Podcast. I'm your host, Declan Harrington. Joining me is Andrew Conway. Hello, Declan. Andrew, this is all true except for the relegation battle, right? Actually, I like I, I I wanted to say like they're they're very profound words for the weekend that's basically settled the whole league campaign <laughs> because nothing of any you know apart apart from the fact that this past week we've seen a barrage of goals some odd refereeing decisions uh, it really has kind of settled in my mind that maybe despite all of our talk all of our discussion of oh it could be an open title race who could get into Europe anybody. It does seem to be settling into a okay. Man City are going to win this by a mile, and the t- the three relegated sides are going to be the three teams that are there for the, almost the entire season. Yeah, like I the, like the point. I suppose I'm trying to make here is that like there's still enough games left that things could oh, change. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. They, they they probably won't. Uh, like we, you know, at this point, I think it's fairly safe to say that Man City are the heavy favourites for the league title. Uh, they probably won't win it by 20 points like we've seen in recent years, but they will well, probably still take it out by 10, 12 points in the end. Uh, the top four race is still pretty open. It usually is the last thing to be settled these days. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the relegation battle is the one that really is standing out to me. Is those those three teams, Chevy United, West Brom and Fulham, are so far gone. That yeah, the- I think it's the earliest I can recall seeing three teams just be completely relegated. Like the 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 issue with Sheffield United, they they just kind of, and it's been said before. Last year they had, they won a lot of fifty fifty matches by a cup by the odd goal, and this year they're losing by the odd goal, and those margins are so tight. And if you have any negative run in form, especially this season where th- where things have been you know match after match after match, the the bad form really piles on itself. Um, that's really what's sunk Sheffield United this season. West Brom and Fulham, less so. I just don't think they have Premier League squads. They don't have the strength and depth. They have the odd very good player in there, like Areola for Fulham. Mitrovic, I think, is is most definitely like a, a top flight player. But like, and a few young kids that are really coming through over at Fulham. They they are good, but they they don't have the depth throughout the whole team to actually be a Premier League side. And then West Brom. Uh, uh, as Savin Village said, when they got promoted, it, w- it was too early. It was they. I think they really should have anticipated getting relegated all year and stuck with Savin Village rather than, you know, pile the money onto Big Sam and have him sign some players over the transfer window and hope that that will snap something into into success. Because, you know, at the moment the the, the points gap is it, it's it's starting to form out and yeah, I I don't really see the likes of Burnley, like Newcastle and Brighton, they have the propensity to lose a lot of matches and, and for that they could fall into it, but they're so far ahead already that, you know, five, a five-match turnaround would would have to just draw them level with, with some of these teams at the moment, which, you know, I don't really see happening. 
Yeah, because it's currently eight points between Fulham in 18th and Burnley in, in 17th, mm-hmm. 23-15. But then you've got West Brom on 12. And Sheffield United are only actually one point behind West Brom on one po- or yeah. one, or on 11. And we consider the fact that Sheffield United are on, what, two points not that long ago. They picked up three wins in the last six games uh, against Newcastle, May United, and, and, and West Brom themselves. Like, you know, they've caught up to the point where they're at West Brom now. West Brom have conceded 54 goals already this season. Big Sam was brought in and there's just no real plan going on there. Like, it's such a, it's just such chaos there. Like, they came up, you know, as you said, Billich was pretty realistic saying that it was probably too soon to come up. I think most people kind of agreed with them at the time. We all probably had West Brom to go down at the start of the season. They actually picked up a couple good perform good results. Three all draw with Chelsea, albeit they were winning three nil at halftime in that game. Billich got sacked after a one all draw at the Etihad, which is the last time Man City didn't win a game. <laughs> so the more Man City win and the more West Brom lose, the more absurd uh, that the timing of that decision looks. Um, so like West Brom are really just getting hammered every game at this point. So, like, they're properly on their way to being one of the worst Premier League teams ever. Um, whereas Sheffield United, you watched them. Like, I watched them against Chelsea. And, like, they weren't bad in that game by any means. Like, they, they look competent in pretty much every shape and form. Uh, you know, Aaron Ramsdale has kind of been uh, a weak point for them, especially when Dean Henderson did so well for them last year. Um, you know, it's been a pretty obvious decline in, in goalkeeping standards there. But then... Like you do just look at them go get through on goal and you just wonder who is actually going to score for this team. Like it's such a such an obvious thing, but it is what's going to sink them is the fact that they don't have someone to nick a goal here and there to get 10 or 15 at the end of a campaign. Like they're they're missing just someone to put the ball in the back of the net, which like it sounds so basic, but you know, you will get relegated if you don't score any goals, um, which is really their big problem. Uh, but with Fulham as well, like again with Fulham like they came up and we all said it's too soon for them they they kind of eat their way through the playoffs they just about beat probably a better team in Brentford um who yeah. will probably go up this season themselves um or at the very least get the playoffs uh and they looked like that opening few games they lost 3-0 to Arsenal 4-3 to Leeds in a weird game and they lost 3-0 to Villa and uh, their opening games and they really looked like they were going to threaten Derby for the the lowest points total ever record. Um, but then they brought in a few good signings. They kind of seemed to click a bit better. Um, but they the results haven't come. Like, they they keep drawing games. They keep losing games 1-0, kind of like Sheffield United themselves. And it, it's just a bit weird. Like, they, they aren't terrible in the way that they were. Like, they're not as bad as West Brom. But they're just so clearly not of the level of even the likes of Burnley and Newcastle, who themselves aren't exactly lighting things up. It's a bit weird, but at the moment, they all look like they're just comfortably about to get relegated. Such a, it's like, you know, oh, um, this season, you know, the the top four will be comfortably qualifying for the Champions League. And it said these teams are comfortably going to drop out of the Premier League into oblivion. And possibly never return uh, in some of these clubs' cases because, like, I I know it's not Dean Smith. What's the name of the other guy? That's uh, Chris Wilder. Jürgen, Chris Wilder, Jurgen Klopp's enemy, his his uh, antagonist. Chris Wilder. You know, it's it's pretty obvious. Sheffield United are going to stick with Chris Wilder, but like, 
can he capture lightning in a bottle twice? Like I think very much last season seems to be, and you know, he he came with fresh ideas. He came with different tactical systems uh, that the Premier League wasn't really used to seeing, and and that's how we got a lot of the results. And they're very tight results at that. But this season, you could see a lot of clubs had ways to combat that, continue to combat that on a regular basis. And will he be able to actually do that again? The championship might have caught up by the time he goes back to it. West Brom, like, what what are they going to go at next? Like, Big Sam's not staying there in the championship. I can't see it happening. You know, where are they going to go? Like, they're the best, the best. Like, they, they've had progressive coaches in the last few years. I'm, what was the guy that got relegated with them? Um, oh, what was his name? Before Savin Village was appointed. Like, he, while not being fantastic, he was progressing the club and really bringing through a lot of the young players there. But, like, Big Sam isn't going to do that. And I, I, you know, Slavin Bilic was the best position person to do that. And I think he would have stuck with the club and you know, rode it out. But they, they've abandoned that ideal entirely. And Fulham, like Fulham is a, what is Fulham? Like, is, is it Scott Parker? Is, is that what it is? is? Is it like this kind of breathing ground for, for young English talent? Or is it, is it the little club in, on the Thames in, in London that is nice to go and visit? You know, is, is that a future for that club? Yeah, Fulham is definitely a weird one because like their owner tried to buy Wembley. They like they should be, yeah. they should be better than what they are. But at the they moment, spend they spend money. Kind of, yeah, like they 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 absolutely do. They they've spent. And they make they, money. The first time they came up uh, recently, there two seasons ago now, like they spent a load of money, and we're all like, oh wow, they built this interesting squad filled with pretty high caliber talent and it completely fell apart and it became like a a parable for future promoted sides to like don't pull a Fulham uh, and then Fulham came up again the next time and we're like what if we spend a load of money again and then yeah. just the same like it's not really working out and it's like what is going on here there's no real cohesion at the club mm. seemingly yeah and they've always kind of lacked that to an extent Fulham because they always they you know they were gone for a long time there in the in the eighties and nineties. They were away from from top flight football. But in the seventies, you know George Best played there, Sam Bowles played there. You know they were a flashy club, lovely club to go visit. It was on the Thames. It was in a great location in London for that. And then you know in the John Tigana when he was the manager in the early two thousands when they got promoted again, and Mohamed Al Fayed was the owner. You know it kind of attracted a flashy player from abroad. It's just a nice place to play football. It's a nice place to be seen, um, and. You know that that kind of attitude has continued the club. They've never really stamped an identity on themselves, and I think they've they've lacked and fallen behind as a result of that. Now, currently, they are building in addition to the stadium. They are trying to become a bigger club in London, especially, and they have a, a bit of a profile going for them. You know, they have you know a regular place in the Premier League over the last twenty or so years. I know they've been zigzagging up and down the last few years, but they have that kind of. Um, uh, mind share of, of the general public of being oh yeah they're a Premier League team in the way that like Leeds United didn't have for the last 20 years um, so you know they could be building towards something but they don't they don't ever seem to they don't ever seem to really know what they're going towards you know you look at Southampton who have an identity who were you know a club who were 15 years ago were in serious financial difficulty in League One and now you know what Southampton stand for they, they have a progressive style of, of football no matter what manager comes in they'll They'll chop it out and switch it around and they'll, they'll, they'll keep on going and they'll keep being adventurous and they'll produce youth and they'll bring those through and give them a chance and, you know, invest in, in players from abroad that maybe didn't get the, the just resort rewards at the bigger clubs they may have been at abroad and they come to Southampton and it's used as a springboard. You know, is that something Fulham want to be or do they want to be a Crystal Palace, which is kind of, 
I don't know what Crystal Palace is probably the where Fulham are heading towards, or it's a club that is was happy to you know to sustain themselves as a Premier League team, but now they seem to be hitting a wall, and that wall is like twelfth place, and they can't get you know they they struggle every year to get above it, and having the likes of Roy Hodgson there is probably not going to change things. But if they do change things and do the the Boer move like they did a few years ago, they are terrified they'll go down, so they immediately sack them. You know, that's that's the world that West Brom are in at the moment. That's where Crystal Palace are heading towards. And is that where Fulham see themselves in five years' times? Or do they want to be a Southampton, a Brighton, a Wolves even, to a, to a lesser extent, a team that is going places? And then in the title race, the, the big game was, of course, between Liverpool and Man City. I think we can all write off Liverpool as uh, title rivals to Man City now. Yeah, like we we've said it. Like the matches are shoring up. Like there's only sixteen or so matches left now. I think isn't it um, maximum? Well, I think Villa might have seventeen matches left, and maybe and Everton as well. But you know, there there's it, it is looking unlikely that that Liverpool can make up ten points on the league leaders. It's happened already this season, so don't get me wrong. It could happen. Like I think Man City had at least that behind Liverpool or behind whoever was top earlier in the season uh, that they came back from with with their early draws and losses. Um, but yeah, it's it's not looking like Liverpool can arrest this form. They're, the defensive issues are at the core of everything that, that seemed to happen. And, and the one player that you could say maybe hadn't let them down so far in the defensive side of things this season, Alisson, really just choked at the weekend and, and threw away in the match in, in a way we haven't seen since maybe Fabian Barthez did it against Arsenal in 2001. Yeah, like uh, obviously people were bringing. I just want to bring up Fabio Martez. Like, <laughs> what was he doing for that second goal? I just, I, I saw the clip again for the first time in ages, and it only really hit me how bad what was the mistake that was. What I, was he doing? Like that man's confidence got so shot at Manchester United. He lost his place in the French French team after leaving Man United, and it, he he managed to come back, and he was a World Cup final goalkeeper in two thousand and six. So. He did make a recovery. There, there was something about him at that club. It just never worked out for him. He was there for a few years. He won a league title, so it's not like he he was you know a terrible signing by any by any stretch of the imagination. It just he made just weird decisions sometimes. You know, he, the the Arsenal where he just kicked the ball. I think at Thierry Henry twice was it, or he he was which one are you talking about? The mistake he made, the one where he just passed it out, or the one where he jumped on the ball and missed the ball. The one where he jumped on the ball and somehow missed it is the one that really mystifies me. Yeah, that was an odd one. I think that would have been disallowed now, you know, to be quite honest. I think they would have just assumed that the player kicked it out of his hands. But at the time, it was let go and that, and that uh, and it ended up being a goal for, for Arsenal in that match and winning in the match for them in the end. Yeah, it, he just had a very strange tenure at Manchester United. I think the most famous moment more than that was even the, the FA Cup match against West Ham in 2000. If you remember where uh, Paolo Di Canio was played through on, uh, on goal and Barthez pretended that he was offside and just held his hand up and didn't react to him and didn't play him and Di Canio just put it past him and that knocked United out of the cup, which was, a you know, at the time was a very big deal because usually usually to that to around those era, you know, United were either winning the cup or going extremely far in it. So um, it was a huge deal at the time and Barthez just was... His bizarre behavior. He could have easily, you know, gone out and tried to challenge Ticanio, and he just didn't. Um, but yeah, to bring it back to this season and today's is match, this, is this the beginning of Allison's Bartez career? I don't really think. Yeah, like I, everyone can have a bad match, and he, he really didn't have much. Like he, 
He's done it a couple of times this season where he's misplaced passes, but it's never really resulted in any major catastrophe for the club. But you could see there was something up with him. And, and sometimes with players who are very much confidence players, and a lot of goalies are that way, the same as goal scorers. They are players that are, you know, impenetrable when they're on, on their game. Nothing can go wrong. And you, and you look throughout the Premier League for players like that who, who seem... Like these guys are world class goalkeepers. I like, look at Lucas Fabianski at West Ham. You know, when he was at Arsenal, he made a mistake at Arsenal that would compound things, and he would make mistake after mistake after mistake and thrown out of it. And then at West Ham, he goes in an opposite run, and you see he's one of the most solid keepers in the league. Jordan Pickford at Everton, something similar going through that this season, really, that he just kept making the silly mistakes. And the, the, it starts playing on your mind, and you start making other stupid mistakes, and you start making bad decisions, and then you start doubting yourself. Like, I think. I, I don't know what threw him so badly because, you know, the Liverpool were still in that match very much so until until that mistake was made. And then what's worse still is he made two mistakes in the same move. Like he got away with the first one and then he just kicked it back out to a to a City player and then was just, you know, completely rattled. I don't think his his approach play on, on that, I think, was it Phil Foden that set up the, the second goal for? Because Bernardo Silva set up one of them and Phil Foden set up the other, I think. Yeah, whichever one it was, his his positioning was all over the place. It's as if he'd already like, oh, I've I've this is I've I've made a horrible mistake, and his his confidence had sunk through the ground. Like it's it's a horrible thing to see, you know, any person, and it definitely was affecting him. And then by the time the the third goal, you know, that that monstrosity that that you know he he almost caused, um, you could see that he he was just shot. His confidence was gone. He was spraying water on his head and it was freezing cold. You know, it's. He's 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 not in the right frame of mind at all. And when you're a goal, like if you're a if you're a left back, you can be in the not right frame of mind and get fine. You can go through a match and not cause a catastrophic goal. You can't really do it when you're goalie, and you certainly can't do it when you're goalie playing against the team top of the league and you know, and this team being Man City. You know, it's 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 just it can't happen. Um, it could be good news for Kevin Keller on, on, on other yeah. news. Like he could get a get a chance in this Liverpool team, but yeah, I think Allison needs to bounce back very quickly if he has any any hope of arresting this uh, this confidence sag. Um, and you know, it's the last thing Liverpool need when they're already missing in multiple defenders and still trying to like bed in blood new defenders they signed at Christmas. As you mentioned, Keller, like he did actually play the game against Brighton, which they also lost. They lost two home games mm. since we last spoke. Like Keller played that because Allison had an illness of some kind, which maybe that was which thing. But like maybe it, that was it. Yeah, maybe he was sick because you know Jurgen Klopp made the, a city comment afterwards about having cold feet. Although I think he was just trying to find some excuse for it because he couldn't pick put a put anything on it. But yeah, maybe he was still suffering from that. Yeah, and like I feel like Allison, he does make once a season. He has one game where it's like, oh well, that was a bit stupid. Like uh, I think it was against Southampton when he just arrived in England. He had the bit where Danny Ings just rushed him and yeah. he scored a goal off it. And uh, like I, yeah. he had similar stuff last season. He's had injuries as well. Like he's had a bit of a weird career at Liverpool. Obviously, he's been a a huge upgrade on Carius, who a few people made reference to as well after these incidents, and obviously Mignolet mm-hmm. as well. Um, but he does like he isn't he isn't the perfect keeper. Obviously, it's very rare that you get the perfect keeper, but he does um, have mistakes in him. And it was just like I think Klopp said after the match as well that in the dressing room, he was like, oh, not today. Like, you know, he he, he was aware of how big these mistakes were. And, you know, you can't choose when you make your mistakes, obviously. But uh, 
this was the worst, worst match they could have done as well. Because, like, Man City haven't won at Anfield since 2003 as well. It's been kind of a big thing for them that they keep going to Man City. They keep going to Anfield. They keep thinking this is the year they can beat them. And then they, they fall apart or things don't work out. Or Liverpool just have the perfect game plan to, to figure them out. Like, it's happened in... Uh, the year when Man City basically won every other match, uh, but they went to Anfield. I think they were still unbeaten that season, the first league win for Pep, and, and Liverpool just tore them apart, went 4-1 up, and to be fair, Man City did bring it back to 4-3, but the damage was kind of done, and Ederson that, that that day was the one making the mistakes. Uh, there was the Champions League game where Liverpool just tore apart Man City as well again. I think it was the same season, they won 3-0. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain scored that amazing goal. Again, Ederson kind of made to look the fool. Um, so it's you know I suppose it's just in a way that it's Allison's turn this time. Man City did yeah. miss a penalty in this game as well. They did, um, yeah. Like a lot went on in this game. Like we we kind of spoke last week about how we're kind of sick of the nil nils and the big games, but uh, and I did think myself that this was destined to be another nil nil. But they they delivered in the second half, and and Man City really kind of asserted themselves in the end. And Foden I think had a pretty breakout performance, like. There's been a lot of talk for him as well of like, oh, why is he not getting more game time? You know, the talent is there. You know, yeah. why aren't we getting to see it? Is there something going on uh, in the background maybe that we're not being told about? What's going on here? Is, is he as good as people are saying? Um, but this this game, I think he, he really kind of put his name out there. Like he is a talent. Left that, that goal he got to, to really put it, the exclamation point at the end of it to make a 4-1 was a, a fantastic strike where he just hit it with his laces uh, out on, on, on the left side. He did Andy Robertson. Um, you know, I think, like, the, it's fair after this match to say that Man City are the favourites. Like, Gundogan has become yeah. a goal machine. Like, they didn't even <laughs> play a recognised striker in this game and they got four goals. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it, and when you consider the fact that Liverpool are supposed to be their close rivals, when you consider the fact that Man United are the team who are closest to them in the table, dropped a, a silly point at Everton in the game before, like they're five points clear with the game in hand. Like this, this really was the game where they effectively lifted the title. Really, yeah. No, I, I, I think you're right, and and especially as we talk about Foden, like it's, I think it's the talk of the last few years that you know this this guy was the best thing to come out of the Man City academy and. No, it just proves that nobody from the academy can get into the Man City side. But you know, he's he's won Pep around. He's played what seventeen matches in the in the Premier League this season out of the out of the twenty two they played. So he's he's been near ever present. He's he's only been subbed off I think three three odd times. Like it, it, it's fairly good for him, and he's certain to add goals to his game. He's certain to add you know flexibility to the side of his play. But <clears throat> I think very much so. The second half was. Um, it, it, I think it showed a lot that you know Pep still has a bit of of nous about him. Um, like we talked I, uh, off camera about the first half performance and about um, how you know Man City were very defensively solid. Like they, as you said, they didn't play a recognized striker at all in the first half, and they didn't play at all. And you know, well, until Gabriel Jesus came on, they 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 didn't have one at all in the match. Um, but they they were so solid. They played four at the back and then in front of them three midfielders playing quite deep and then it's kind of the breakaway runners of Foden and, and Sterling really causing trouble and, and as you say, Gundogan coming through and, and getting on the end of chances. You know, that didn't really happen for them in the first half, but that was the style of football they went out to play and it really just Liverpool couldn't break through that that back line. They had, I think there was a, a segment in the first half where they had seventy two or seventy five percent possession. Liverpool before the penalty, they were really on top in the match and they were really pushing it, but they couldn't even get within the um, you know a donkey's roar of the goal so you know city really did have the the tactical advantage in that first half and then the second half as you said 
Pep changed things up a bit and Foden became more integral and more central and, and became the, the striker effectively and, and so on pressurising the Liverpool backline and it eventually did lead to those uh, mistakes from Alisson and those goals. Just for Liverpool, like they went 68 games in the league unbeaten at home and now they've lost mm-hmm. three in a row. Like, you know, they've obviously had their issues this year, but is that a valid excuse for the kind of results and performances that they're they're giving? I don't agree with Roy Keane if, if this is what you're asking that they've been bad champions like this is a weird season there's no doubt about that that's why a team that finished as high as Sheffield United did last season went nearly half the season without getting a victory you know the, it has been strange the teams are playing two matches every single week there's players dropping out with Covid you know Aston Villa had to postpone multiple matches Everton had to have matches postponed because of Man City because you know a, a disease broke out in camp that is highly contagious and possibly deadly uh, to to people who who contract it, you know, so it it isn't a normal season. It isn't a normal title defense. Like Liverpool have been doing a lot of things right. They still got a lot of goals. They still scored more goals than Man City this season, which is which is crazy. But they've lost a lot in in the defense, and there is a a, a crucial thing that a lot of teams who win the league can't sustain, which is the hunger. Once you win the league, it's very hard to win it again. That's why. It is considered the real mark of a champion. You know that's why Manchester United were celebrated when they did it multiple times in the nineties and two thousands. That's why Man City under Pep the first time they won the league, they retained it. it. Was a huge deal when Mourinho won it with Chelsea. It was a huge deal when they retained it. It is a huge thing to do, and it really involves you having to have that extra psychological edge that you really want to win more, more than anything. And a lot of teams just don't have it. And I think this Liverpool side, maybe there's a few players in there that didn't have that edge, that they didn't want that hunger. They didn't have that desire to go and win it again at all costs. Of course, with that, there, there is injuries as well to, to take into account. And I know you can say that, you know, all the teams are suffering with injuries and they are, but Liverpool in particular in very specific zones and it's, it's really dismantled their ability to play their style of football. It's just fallen by the wayside. And, as well as that, I think Jurgen Klopp's inability to maybe cope with the change of football that's happened this season. You know, the it's what led to Tottenham Hotspur having such a successful early part of the season because they were already playing COVID football to play very slowly, walking football, conserve energy and break very quickly. And Liverpool, you know, that wasn't their, their modus operandi before. It was just like absolutely go after them, every team in the first few minutes and hope to score and take, uh, take it on from there and just overwhelm your opposition. And like in recent weeks, we've seen them drop off from that, but they haven't managed to convert that into any victories. You know, they're really struggling with things at the moment. Um, and I think that's partially because they haven't adjusted their style of play to cope with this new this new football world we live in in COVID with two matches a week. Uh, Man United equaled a Premier League record uh, this week. They won 9-0 against Southampton. Southampton again mm. losing 9-0. Uh, but they follow that up by throwing away a 3-2 lead in the dying minutes at home to the ever-inconsistent Everton. What do you make of those two performances? Like, look at look at Everton's, just just look at Everton's last few matches. You know, they they, they do it every time. They yeah. win, lose, draw, win, lose, draw, draw, yeah, lose, Yeah, I was, I, was, I was actually thinking about it today. Like, did, did Man United just know that Everton were due a draw and like, give it away to them? Yeah. <laughs> the way they played those last few minutes kind of felt like that. You know, it, it, maybe it is a bit like that. And Everton are still in, you know, they don't seem it at the moment. They're they're back way in seventh place. But the, the two matches they have in hand, they're still technically in touch with Champions League football. And to, especially in touch with Liverpool. They have two matches in hand over Liverpool, only three points behind. You know, they, they could overtake their great Merseyside rivals. But yeah, it's 
Manchester United, I think the 9 0, and I think everyone I think everyone will agree with this. They kind of it flattered Manchester United against the Southampton side. I think Southampton had a lot of excuses on the night. I think they made some ridiculous decisions the players did, <laughs> that's for sure, getting sent off and really just they they, they couldn't cope with it. Their their bottle went, they psychologically lost it, they couldn't cope. And after the first few goals went in, you kind of felt that um, the match was over. But then uh, you know, you, you can't just leave the match then. they Really, they should have forfeit the match and lost it 3-0, to be honest, <laughs> rather than lose to 9-0 again, because that's going to damage them for some time. They're five, there's their five matches lost in a row now for Southampton. You know, they're really, there was a point a few months ago when they were top of the league, and now they're 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 falling ever closer to that, uh, that dreaded Crystal Palace zone of, of being, you know, safe, but miserable in mid-table around the 10th, 11th, 12th place. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's not necessarily funny, haha, but it's just funny, interesting that, you know, we, we obviously talk about Liverpool and it has framed a lot of our discussions around Liverpool this season of the injuries, the impact of COVID and all this. But I think Southampton similarly have been hit by this very, very hard. Like they they were playing this Al Yankovic guy uh, who got sent off within 78 seconds because they had no one else to play. Like they are down to the, the absolute bare bones yep. in that team. Like this is a guy who the week before the match handed in a transfer request. um to the team so like he's clearly not much loved uh uh, at st mary's but they they had to play him anyway uh, and he got sent off for like i I feel like we should take an aside here and just like say it like that is one of the worst tackles i've ever seen (laughs) like it It was the best he he got so high up scott tomine's legs that it actually avoided injury like there's that weird zone in the bottom part of his legs where if you get someone there with the studs, like you can't actually break their legs, but he actually managed to avoid that by going higher. Up yeah, Scott he kind of just hit legs. the kind of yeah the the fatty muscle above his knees. Yeah, so like you can um, see the the marks on Scott McTominay's yeah. legs, like they looked rotten. He was able to keep going, and he eventually, got, I think, it was the sixth goal, uh, which was a bit of a funny goal in itself, where he just kind of the ball popped out and he just hit it. Mm. Um, and to know how Salah just opened up like Moses parting the Red Sea there. Um, it was a bit strange, but I suppose, yeah, Southampton just kind of gave up uh, in, in a weird way. Like, it, I, I was thinking about this as well when it was still nil-nil. Like, the, the the easiest team to play with 10 men is, is pro- or to play against with 10 men is probably Southampton just because they play such a robust pressing system that requires every cog in the machine to be working perfectly yeah. for it to pull off. And if you take just a cog out of the machine, it completely falls apart. Um, because I don't know if they've gotten anyone sent off since the other nine nil, um, but in that nine nil against Leicester, they it was it was Ryan Bertrand. They'd just gone down to one nil, I think, and it was very early in the game, and it was very it was incredibly early against Man United, and 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 at that point, it just felt like well, this is done. Uh, and as the game progressed, like the memories of the Leicester performance just kept stirring. Like, and I think Ralph Hasenhutl even admitted mid game or that after the game that he was thinking during it. Like, oh no, please don't be nine again. Like, there's got to be something that he can do next time this happens because they will get a red card again. Like, every team yeah. gets players sent off. Like, they they will be down to 10 men again and they have to react better than this because they can't just lose 9-0 every season. Like, that's just, like, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. The players don't want to be involved. The, the managers don't want to be involved. Like, we'll look back in 10, 15 years and we'll go... Yeah remember that side that lost 9-0 yep. twice in a row like that's that's humiliating for the players they don't want that and they have to avoid it happening again like they can't lose 9-0 a third time can they 
I don't know. Ralph Hasenhutl is a strange manager. You know, there's a reason why he was kind of left. You know, he was put out in the cold by Leipzig. Wasn't well, Leipzig he was at previously? Yeah. Like there was a reason why he was like not given the the long term reins of the of the of a big club that was growing in stature, and he was exiled from Germany, if you will. And possibly it is because he wears his heart in his, shit, his sleeve. He he's very emotionally attached to everything that goes on in the club, and he's very you know you saw him burst into tears when he beat Liverpool a few. Like that was only a few weeks ago, and now they're and now they're losing matches nine nil and on a and a five game losing run. Um, yeah, so that you know maybe it is that maybe it is that emotional attachment that if something goes wrong, it's like a house of cards. You know, you remove a, a crucial piece, and it all falls apart. And it's worrying if you ask me and it was worrying last season when they lost and I remember at the time he was one of the favourites to be sacked as a manager and they they turned things around I think they could they have the potential to do it again but you know it is um, it is like that resilience that you need to have in a team and you you know you can't you have to be able to at least shut up shop because I don't honestly think Man United were really going for the jugular you know it's not like they hated Southampton I know there was bad blood after last season's match and you know the way that ended at Old Trafford there was a bit of uh, animosity between the two sides no doubt but you know United could have made that worse they could have gotten to double figures which would have been even more of a humiliation and you'd you'd have to ask at what point would heads have to roll for what, at what point of a defeat would heads have to roll um, and you know I think that could happen again in Southampton's case I know you said there there is circumstances happening but you know when I ha- you know one, if it happens once, it's misfor- It's a misfortune. If it happens twice, it's it's your fault, really. And and that's two seasons in a row. And they have to be able to to shut things down and you know have some dignity in the way they play because at the very least, it's it's destroyed their goal difference again. And now now they're 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 you know going to be in. It's going to be a tight league this year. It's going to be you know separated by a point or two or goal difference in especially around the mid table into the European places. And if you know that game could really cost them come the end of the season. Never uh, mind United, like, you know, in, in that game, they, I suppose they, they played to the, the 10 men they're up against. Like, you can't really look into it too much. Like, they, I think they played quite well, but given the circumstances, you know, it, 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 it to put it this way, it was the kind of game where they could have made it difficult for themselves. Historically, on the last few years, they have made it difficult for themselves when it looks like they have a freebie of a victory. Um, they they end up messing it up and they draw nil nil, or they they make or they end up waiting till the 80th minute to finally break down the the bus, the Southampton Park. But to to their credit, they made it pretty easy for themselves. They're four nil up at half time, then they got five more in the second half. Uh, eventually against nine men in the end. Um, so I suppose for that, you know, to their credit, I suppose. And then the Everton game was was a strange one as well, uh, for very different reasons. I thought my night were actually much better in that game than in the Southampton yeah. game. Yeah, I thought they played quite well. Like, I thought it relative... was over, yeah. Yeah, um, I thought that was one of their best performances of the season, and then suddenly they just kind of gave up. Um, they gave the, they gave it away for nothing, really. Like, that would have been a pretty big three points as well, you know, considering, you know, what you said about Everton still kind of being around there. Like, Man United aren't definitely in the top four. Like, they could still throw it away. Uh, you know, we saw Leicester do it last season. Um, so like that would have been a big three points. It would have kept the pressure on Man City as well. Um, even just for now. Um, but now they they drop the points and it looks like the title's over before it could even really begin for for Man United. Um, like and and the weird thing is is that they played well. Like they you know they they've had problems at home. Uh, they've had some really dire performances this season and under Solskjaer in general, but they played quite well in this game. Everything couldn't get out of their own half. 
for about 85 minutes total of the entire game, but there was that weird five-minute period in the second half where Everton just decided to attack and they broke through Man United like a hot knife through butter. Um, and well, then after that, Man United con- gained control of the game back. They got a bit of a fortuitous goal from Robin Olsen just kind of having the same kind of arms as Jordan Pickford. They've got the same problem where their arms are too short. Uh, Scott McTominay scored the header, and from there it looked really comfortable. And then, yeah, yeah, they just completely failed to see out the game, which is a bit of a problem. Like, you know, it seems like such a basic concept. Like, you know, we don't exactly play football at a professional level or anywhere near close, but we know if we're winning 3-2 in the dying minutes of the game, you you keep hold of the ball, you put yeah. it near the corner flag. Like, it's just kind of the basic thing of football. Like, we all know it. It's a, it's a truism of the game that you don't just give away silly free kicks and give away the ball from long goal kicks and stuff like that. It's just very silly and naive. And uh, yeah. I, I got the impression Solskjaer was not happy about it afterwards. No, I I wouldn't imagine he was. But it does remind me, this isn't the first time this happened. I remember last season was happening a few times as well. And- happened against Southampton. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I remember that. There was other things that happened as well in that match, but uh, I was thinking, what was the match with Jesse Lingard got? You remember, if you do it again, Jesse, you're coming off. Oh that, yeah, that was was that a Sheffield United game? I think. Yeah, it, it it just that kind of that kind of attitude of of Solskjaer to the and the team's attitude to Solskjaer sometimes it comes out, and I think this is one of those examples because it was just like pump the ball. Like if you look at it, similar to what we were saying about Southampton losing nine nil and. You know, if it happens once, it's 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 it can happen. But if it happens twice, it's 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 on you. Like, and I I kind of feel that I'm starting to feel that way in Manchester United. Like, if it happens once, it's you know a mistake can happen, a lapse in con- on concentration can happen. But this happens has happened multiple times for Manchester United, including earlier in the season. And it's it's their lack of attentiveness. It's their lack of focus in, at crucial times. And you know, every second of a Premier League match is effectively crucial these days, as you can see from that Everton performance. They can score two goals in no time at all. Um, and and really punish you. And I think you, there is there is something to be said for, you know, Solskjaer, you know, his laid back approach sometimes does work out for let his, let his players be players, let them do their thing. But sometimes I think, especially in, in the areas where you're trying to keep it tight, keep it under control, you do need that somebody kind of letting them know, like, lads, keep it solid, keep it simple. Don't do anything stupid. Keep it switched on. Wake up. You know, this is... If you remember earlier in the season with Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw getting into words on the pitch when he was like, wake up, you know, Luke Shaw, Harry Maguire shouting at him because they weren't really paying attention. And, you know, there there is a bit of a trend and it is the type of player Manchester United have. You know, they do have a few players who are a bit, I would say, waffly with their thought process sometimes. You know, Martial, uh, Luke Shaw, as I said, maybe you can make an argument for Paul Pogba as well. You know, players who sometimes go daydreaming, sometimes like let the, the, the pace of the game kind of tip pass them by. Like Lingard was like that to an extent as well. And he's been offloaded for the point for the time being. Um, but, you know, that that's something that needs to be worked on and coached out of you. And really, if you can't be coached out of it, you have to be constantly talked about. That's you remember I'm thinking of Tony Pulis, you know, talking about how he, he played the first half. And Mourinho did this as well. He said this about some player. Was it Eden Hazard he said it about, or was it somebody else that he was like, oh, I played the first half? No, it was about Luke Shaw, wasn't it, actually? Uh, Mourinho said it about he, he played the first half because Luke Shaw was on the same side as the dugout, and he told him exactly what to do, when to do it. And I think some players are a bit like that. They need that, they need that not constant instruction, but they need to be kind of like reminded that they're playing a football match and they're not messing around. Uh, Jose Mourinho's Tottenham, but for how much longer? Well... 
you know, they have a big game coming up next week, <laughs> uh, which we'll probably talk about in a while. But uh, I think that could be a, a telling result <laughs> of a match, you know, if because, you know, Reno has a decent record against Pep, as we well know. He does tend to get a result against him. I think that was the last match Man City lost, if I'm remembering correctly, against the Spurs uh, earlier in the season. You know, they, they did win. You know, let's say something, although it was against West Brom. And it did take Harry Kane coming back to actually do anything in the match. I I just don't see Daniel Levy pulling the trigger on it. I don't see him sacking him. You know, I I part of it's because who would they get in that's going to be better, that's going to make the season better for them. I don't know. Is there that person available at this time that Spurs can actually acquire? And who you know the the, the question after that is: Do they have the the stomach to? to go back into the doldrums of mid-table to, to rebuild. And I'm not sure if they have that in them either. Um, so I think this could this slump could go on. Like Mourinho will win matches between now and the end of the season. He goes on good runs, but I think they're close enough to wave from Champions League prospects goodbye because they don't have enough firepower. And if anything happens to Son, if Kane is out for again for a number of weeks, which is very possible in, in this long, long season, and it's they're still... Tottenham still have what twenty odd matches left, considering you know how well they might do in Europe and things. It it it's going to really great on the on the squad that's there, and you know there isn't a lot of there isn't a lot of depth in there that's that's high quality. He's he's kind of cast that depth aside. The Delhi Alleys of this world have been have been hung out to dry really, and yeah, it's it, it's not looking too great for for Tottenham at the moment. Their their only saving grace is that the the teams around them seem to keep losing matches like. Leeds, Arsenal, Aston Villa haven't had the run, even Southampton for that matter, haven't managed to put a run together to to really, you know, knock Tottenham down to the bottom half of the table, which is where their form has really set them up for being. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. And uh, I think this could be a pretty telling few weeks for, for Jose Mourinho tenure at Spurs. But do you think, like, Daniel Levy's going to sack him? I like, And who would replace him? I don't see... Like Daniel Levy isn't one quick for that, but then especially with Jose Mourinho, he it was his man. He wanted him so badly, and he gave him everything he Mourinho asked for. But like, who like would he do that to his friends, <laughs> so to speak? And who could Tottenham even get? Like, will they go backwards and go towards the the Tim Sherwood pick of Eddie Howe or someone in that ilk? Frank Lampard, even you know, go with the Andre Villas-Boas, Chelsea sacked manager, is appointed at Tottenham soon after. Like, will that be where they go? Because I don't know if that'll uh, end up too well for Tottenham. The, the thing that, that just kind of grates for me and the idea that Jose Mourinho will be afforded time at Tottenham when he doesn't really deserve it is the fact that Pochettino spent four or five years building up a, a CV at Tottenham and, and, a, and a reason to, to stick by him. And they absolutely did not. They threw him under the bus as soon as they could. And... Uh, he was out the door November of that season, uh, having got them to a Champions League final five months mm. prior. And, you know, what's Jose Mourinho done for Tottenham to deserve uh, more loyalty than than what they they gave to Pochettino? So on that basis, I think his job should be under threat. If if Daniel Levy's going to be ruthless to Pochettino, a manager who did more for the club's reputation yeah. than anyone has in the last 30, 40 years, um, then, you know, it, it just kind of boggles. Like, you know, this is an appointment yeah. that at the time we said, um, you know, doesn't really make any sense. We we saw what he did at Chelsea uh, that final season where the term the Mourinho, fa- uh, Mourinho season was born. 
uh, and it was not a complimentary uh, fa- no. phrase either. Um, you know, we saw that. We saw Man United pick up the pieces of that and go, that was a weird decision for them. We'll see if it pays off. It didn't pay off at all. Uh, and then we said, okay, well, the next place Mourinho goes is probably going to be lower down than, than Man United. It's probably going to be a mid-table side, maybe a French team or a Spanish team <laughs> who's more yeah. like Valencia. And then Tottenham just pick them up for no reason, really. Like, they... Okay, they they didn't have the best of times under Pochettino those few weeks. The form wasn't great, but you know if you were going to rebuild that squad, which is what it looked like they needed to do, you would you would bet your house on Pochettino doing a better job than Mourinho, given the last four or five years. Um, but they went with Mourinho, and nothing really seems to suggest that that was the correct call. Um, they're lucky that Harry Kane came back and seemingly is fit again. He seemed fine in that West Brom game. We'll see how that goes. But yeah, if they if they don't have if they don't have Harry Kane, like they look completely lifeless. Um, like they lost that game to or to Chelsea one nil to a a really stupid penalty from Eric Dyer. Um, another one of Mourinho's kind of loyalists. Um, and things just like it, there's just no life there. There's nothing that really inspires you to think this is why someone should be supporting Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, and like I do follow a few Tottenham Hotspur fans on Twitter who are all like. Yeah, I don't really see the point in watching them at the moment because they're just so boring and so uninteresting. And then you've got the fact that Mourinho himself, like he had that comment after the Chelsea gamer said to the interviewer that you don't deserve an answer for a pretty mundane question as to why Gareth Bale didn't play. And like, it's stuff like that that really just grates. Like, why why would you put up with this man? He's clearly miserable. He brings others down. He He's got the ego the size of Russia. Like, why Why are we bothering? Like, why are we still sticking with with Jose Mourinho? Like you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, they were doing okay beforehand and it was kind of because of the fact that they were playing uh, COVID football before anyone else. It's like they were playing COVID football before COVID even happened, really. Um, oh, yeah, they were. They were. Fo- football, football regressed to Mourinho's state uh, for a couple of months there and now it's kind of, you know, evolving back to where it was. yeah. yeah. And he's being left behind again. <laughs> like, it's just... And, and and what really gets me is, like, Mourinho, you think about him in, in the late 90s, the early 2000s, like, he was built up as this great footballing mind. He had... He had Brian, was it Brian? Bobby Robson? Bobby Robson. Bobby Robson. Bobby Robson. Yeah. Bobby Robson and Louis van Gaal at Barcelona and Porto before that were both like, this man is a footballing genius. He writes the best reports we've ever seen on upcoming opponents um he he goes to Porto. he wins the champions league yeah he but he he had yeah. this he amazing wins the reputation league, he wins the uefa cup and then the champions league the following season with a portuguese side which you he, know when he the revolutionizes century, yeah. he revolutionizes chelsea into making them one of the biggest clubs in the world like this is a man who knew football he he would go to press conferences before big games and say xyz will happen the ref will do this the opposing manager will do this and then it would all happen uh yeah. like he he had an aura around him where he was the guy in football he was the man and it's just completely left him by and it seems like it's just through arrogance and laziness like why is he not learning it seems like it's a stubborn attitude to be like no my methods still work instead of being like, I can adapt my methods and improve those methods and evolve and prove that I am still the greatest. 
And it's just this laziness and arrogance. And it really annoys because he's such an unlikable person on top of everything else. And it's comments like that to the um, interviewer on BT where he's just like, go away. I'm above yeah, you. Don't, I'm above you this. don't deserve an answer to a female reporter. Something along those lines was said. Like if if he just answered the question and he came off in any way personable, you could, I suppose, manage through a tough period. But when he's just so unlikable, it's like, get out of the club, get out of this league. Please leave football alone. <laughs> we don't need you anymore. Very, very, very harsh words there for Jose Mourinho from, from Declan Hart. Um, yeah, I, I can't say I disagree with a lot of it. You know, he, you can go back and rationalise why he had success. You know, the Porto success, I think, still is the biggest success. Winning winning a European trophy with an unfancy team. He was the first to, like a major the European Cup, that is. He was kind of the first to do that in the, in the Champions League era. You know, before then... Nobody really, like the biggest shock was Real Madrid winning it in 2000 before then, which is much of a shock. Um, so I know more followed in the years following with, with Liverpool winning it and a few more when, you know, Chelsea won it. And I, even one of the Real Madrid victories is probably quite quite astonishing at the time. But yeah, like Porto, they, they changed the way European football was played for a time in the mid in the mid 2000s. He, he went to Chelsea, a Chelsea team that was nearly fully formed, but he actually solidified it, gave them a style of football, which... Th- to an extent, they've never really left behind that kind of solid defensive core with with a you know flair attacking players at the front of it that would that would win matches for them and and having a hard hard nose centre forward that kind of hold the ball up for those other flair players that like that that he established that at Chelsea and it, it hasn't really gone away in the in the fifteen subsequent years. He went to Inter Milan as he said and 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 won the Champions League there and then on to Real Madrid and that's where his problems started falling to the wayside because he came against someone like Pep Guardiola and Barcelona who were playing an evolved style of football a style of football he he couldn't cope with that would beat his teams routinely and in important matches and eventually he had to go inside himself and become ultra defensive ultra bad gamesmanship ultra Pepe and you know that was the only way to even get half a result out of Barcelona and he he drove Pep Guardiola maybe away from um, from the club he supported as a child um, and after that, it's just like Mourinho has never really recovered. I think that might have psychologically scared him, to be honest. And he's never really come back to the big table of um, of football tactics, of football strategy, of football evolution. He he's been back doing the same old thing that he was doing in Chelsea fifteen years ago, without really evolving it very much. And as you've said, the game has changed an, an enormous amount since then. Uh, and then finally, you know, we we had harsh words from Mourinho, but we would never tell him to go jump off a bridge or anything or say we were going to kill him because uh, that's kind of what Mike Dean's been receiving in the last week or so. He received death threats following a pretty busy mm. week for the main event man, as I like to call him. Like, have we all lost our collective minds over pretty inane refereeing decisions? Yeah, stop. Just don't be giving death threats to anyone. You can have opinions about someone out death threatening somebody and... In in reality, the you know I I wouldn't take a huge amount of these death threats seriously. I hope they don't come to anything. I really do, but I you know I imagine this is a bunch of stupid people doing stupid things. And fifteen years ago, they didn't have the ability to do those stupid things of of commenting and actually directly communicating with someone like Mike Dean or Mike Dean's family. So you know the it it is just a stupid you know side product of the modern society and the open communications that we have that these stupid people can make such comments and such 
irrational, idiotic threats to somebody who's just doing their job. You know, we, we can make jokes about Mike Dean. We do make jokes about Mike Dean. We may not like a lot of things Mike Dean does on a professional basis, but that doesn't give anyone the right to, to assault or attack or to attempt to do any of that stuff or to make someone's life harder for, for no reason. Like he, he made the decision. It was his decision. He looked at it again and he, he was happy with that decision. It's been overturned. That happens. It's happened to Mike Dean before. Hopefully it'll happen to him again. And he'll continue refereeing, and we'll have a joke about Mike Dean, man, you know, refereeing some team, and then that he always that they always lose, and Mike Dean referees, or you know, some other kind of weird thing that that happens. I just, you know, he he's a bit of a, a jokester at this point. He hasn't got long left at the top of the game, and you know, let him let him have his last couple of seasons at the with, with a bit of dignity, I suppose. Three for me, and two for that. The Champions League format faced a lot of scrutiny in the last week. It's been called a backdoor Super League. It's known as the Swiss model and it's got all the big leagues talking. Nothing is certain yet, but all we do know is that there's no way everyone will be happy. Before we begin, I'm going to rule out the open seed straight knockout concept just right out of the gate and ask between the two options put forward, where does the European competition go next? Well, you know, I, I don't know why you dismissed the uh, <laughs> the open seed straight draw. It's not the going to happen. Things. They're just not going to do it. It's, oh, it's dead. It's so never going to happen. It used to be great. Real Madrid, Liverpool, first round, <laughs> you know. <laughs> never again. Knocked out in, in September. Um, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny because uh, around the time of when 2003, 2004, when they dropped the second group stage of the Champions League, it was, I think it was 17 matches you'd have to play to win the Champions League, um, not including qualifying matches if you went through qualifiers. And the European clubs, a big, you know, the G14, I think it was what, what the group was called at the time, um, they they decided that there was too many matches and they, they had too much commitment and there was dead rubbers and et cetera and so forth in, in the second group stage and they wanted less matches. So they got rid of that second group stage. And now it seems the main motivation for this whole change is that they want to play more matches, which makes me think that these clubs don't know what they're talking about and that they may not know what's best for the uh, for the formatting or, or of tournaments and that maybe they should adopt, you know, a, a fairly standardized system. Um, because... Really, is there that many dead rubbers anymore? You know, maybe the first group stage you can argue for that, but I think those dead rubbers are caused by virtue of the way the format is uh, damaging smaller leagues across Europe that, you know, gives guaranteed paces to the, the big leagues. And if you gave a bit more to these smaller leagues around Europe, it would increase their revenue, increase players' desire to play for them and yeah, really, you know, drive them forward. But that's my opinion on it. What do you think? Have you ever seen that sketch from uh, it's some Netflix show? I can't remember what it's called, where the dude in the hot dog suit crashes into a store, the clothing yeah. store. Have you ever? And then yeah. he gets out, or it, the the car is a hot dog car, and then he stands in the store in the hot dog suit, being like, "We need to find the guy who did this." Mm. And everyone around is like, oh, "You're the guy who did this." Yeah, and he tries to play it off, and it, you know it's humorous or whatever. This is the big clubs trying to figure out. <laughs> how to fix European football. Like, we need to figure out who ruined European football. Uh, but they're the ones who, who crashed into the into the Champions League and the Europa League. Um, because, like, as you said, the the initial format of the European Cup, it, it, it was pretty good. You know, you'd have Liverpool play Nottingham Forest or Real Madrid in the first round and they'd be out of Europe in, in 
September. Like there was jeopardy in, in everything and every game mattered. And, you know, the, the history of European football is built on some of those games. Like, you know, there's so many great rivalries even that go back uh to back to the 60s 70s 80s and, and even the early 90s when it switched um like it, it was a great tradition uh, and it was a great tournament and you know what they replaced it with had had problems but i think over the last 25 years we can say that the the current champions league format has led to some similarly high quality moments like we've had istanbul we've had uh, Pep's Barcelona, we Man United against Bayern Munich in 99, like, we've had some absolutely fantastic moments, and they're just kind of in the finals, like, there's been some, some, like, there's the 6-1 with Barcelona, PSG and their multiple collapses, really, uh, like, there's been some great moments, um, but ultimately, we've always been heading for this stage where uh, the inequality in the game has meant that, you know, a match between uh, Liverpool and Basel doesn't mean what it meant 40 years ago because Liverpool no. are, are a behemoth of the game and Basel are a team that just keep winning in Switzerland and no one really knows what's <laughs> going on with Swiss football like you know I can I can name a few teams in Switzerland but Salzburg? I couldn't tell you Red Bull Salzburg? Yeah. that's Austria oh yeah good point exactly good point. <laughs> yeah so wow. and they're doing they're doing the same in my mind. <laughs> yeah Salzburg not in Switzerland it turns out oh. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, European football is kind of a mess outside of the top five leagues. Like it says a lot that whenever we talk about oh Neymar is the top scorer in the top five leagues, you know we have to we have to always caveat it because yeah. you know we're always discussing the top five leagues because if you go down to the six, seven, and eight, there's just such a huge gulf in in the amount of prize money and the amount of domestic TV money that those teams bring in that you know they're basically it's the championship to the Premier League really. Uh, in terms of the heavyweights well, of European football. Yeah, isn't the championship, is there more money in the championship than there is in most of the other leagues in Europe, including... Probably, like, yeah. There, I think there's as much money in the championship as there is in France. If I, like, if, if I'm... You, you could probably... I'm sure someone a bit more knowledgeable about outside of, of the top five leagues could, could probably make the argument that if you took someone like Brentford, a pretty well-run club in England... Uh, but in the second tier, and and you drop them in Greece, they could probably win the Greek league, like given in a couple of years, um, like just given the way things are at the moment, how how diff how how big the the difference in in resources yeah. is. Like Brentford probably do have a much bigger revenue stream than, than whatever uh, AEK Athens have or whatever Olympiacos yeah. have. Um, and the difference, the the only thing that Olympiacos would have is the fact that they get into European competitions. That's kind of the equalizer there. Uh, yeah. But domestically, Brentford make way more. Um, so like, yeah. really, the only true way to to solve the wide diaspora of of European leagues is is it, it's not solvable. It, it really isn't. Like I don't know. I can't put forward a way to have. Olympiacos be on level pegging with Man City. I I don't see how that can happen. I don't see how yeah. you can have Basel be the same as Chelsea. Like it's just not possible anymore. And like it's what makes the eventual European Super League just seem so obvious. Like they these teams have kind of outgrown so much of Europe. Like the the sport can only sustain so many big clubs and. Uh, I do find it interesting, the idea that they've put forward. I do obviously fear for mm -hmm. where it can go. Like, I don't want a European Super League. I like that, you know, uh, the big names are spread out across the various leagues and that they only meet a few times in the Champions League. Like, that is 
it adds to the atmosphere of the Champions League. It adds to its aura and its its historic nature of like we don't get to see Neymar play Messi twice a week. We don't get to see Ronaldo play against Mohamed Salah. Um, you know, every year, yeah. you know, it's 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 the luck of the draw that they get to play those those, those the best players actually yeah. get to play each other and at the World Cup and the and the other various uh, international tournaments. So like the idea of them eventually going to a European Super League is is so off putting, and it always again strikes of the similar thing with Mourinho, Mourinho of laziness, stubbornness, and arrogance. Because, and I've seen Rory Smith make this point as well in the New York Times is like you know people laugh at the idea of like oh look at look ahead to the fixtures ahead, and and you'll see maybe Wolves are playing against Fulham, and who on earth wants to watch Fulham play Wolves? Um, yeah. But eventually, if you have 20 teams in the same league every year and it doesn't matter how big of a club you were if you're coming 17th and 18th then no one cares if Bayern Munich plays Juventus because at the end of the day uh, if you watch a TV show you don't care necessarily about the cast of, char- cast of characters specifically you care about the storylines and the intrigue built around that and, and what makes the character so interesting is the stories they're put into and it's the same in live sport if you put Juventus and Bayern Munich into a dead rubber tie uh, that means absolutely nothing, then it's not going to draw figures just because you're watching Bayern Munich and Juventus. And again, I've just picked those two at random. It, oh, could, yeah, be, right. it could be anyone else. Like, you know, every league needs a West Brom, I think was his line. Uh, and no one wants to be West Brom. Uh, you know, every <laughs> team, every, every league needs to be, needs a Crystal Palace, but no one wants to be Crystal Palace. Um, yeah. and you know that could be Real Madrid in, in 10 years time they could be Crystal Palace and they could like it's this it's the kind of short-sighted thinking that they just don't they don't even seem to question uh, because the arrogance of, of them all is no no we won't be we won't be we, we'll be winning it every year of course you know we're the best team yeah. we have to win it every year we will never finish 12th and like it just doesn't make any sense um, and like the current Champions League format has been going in that direction because like in the last few years now we've seen you know 16 teams guaranteed from the top four leagues an additional two or three from France which leaves no room for the likes of Greece and Hungary and and Austria and Switzerland to have nations get in get into the top competition and do well because they're just being out dwarfed by the bigger teams and their greed and uh, it really does feel like in the next decade we're going to see a massive shift in the game in the way that we did 25 to 30 years ago yeah like it's worrying that these new proposals like the worst the really i don't mind them mixing with the format too much i don't mind them like okay we're gonna like i said 15 16 years ago they got rid of the second group stage 10 years before that they got rid of the third group stage they had kind of which was to qualify for the semi-finals you know that these things are fine they making those little tweaks i think are okay I don't even mind necessarily them doing away with the the current eight group structure and and making it a more elongated group and you know people playing off uh, to get into the quarterfinals after Christmas. That I, that bit I don't mind. Really, it's the proposals that are talking about teams qualifying based on their coefficient because that really it takes what you've just said there about you know the four the four teams from each of the five leagues taking up half the spaces in the tournament, more than half the spaces in the tournament. Um, that really knocking things back because basically it means that no, it doesn't matter how bad you are, as long as you're a big club, you're going to qualify for this big money making regime, and that will ensure that you'll continue to be a big club, and it'll cut out everybody else from possibly joining that group. And you only have to go as far back as like Man City or Leicester City in in, in the UK 
or you know Paris Saint Germain weren't qualifying for the Champions League regularly ten years ago. You know th- these teams weren't in in this conversation ten years ago, and if these these come through, they would never be in that conversation ten years from now. If this was a new club coming up, if it's the Brentford of the world, if it's Valencia coming back, you know these teams would never be able to qualify for these the the Premier European tournament, and that, that's kind of sad. And I hope they don't go that way. I think it's bad enough that. There is so many qualifiers from each of these other teams that the Europa League, the UEFA Cup, as it once was, has been devalued so much that nobody even wants to be in it. And yeah, I, the, the things they're looking to change aren't the right things. They should be looking to make it more equal. They should be looking to make payments to smaller leagues to make them more competitive. They should be looking at, at, at different ways to kind of improve the overall quality so that there isn't dead rubbers, that there isn't these matches that like, oh, the you know, Chelsea are going to be in a crappy group, but they're still going to qualify because the teams they're playing aren't, aren't close enough to their second team. That Chelsea will just slide through and, and, and beat Sevilla once and that'll be enough for them. You know, that's that's what, what the existence of the Champions League at the moment. I think they need to make things better there, but they're not going to. And, like, I just hope it doesn't go too badly wrong. Yeah, because, like, you know, the stuff you say about bringing in, say, for instance, AC Milan qualified for the Champions League, even mm. though they didn't, they finished eighth in, in Syria, although they are leading at the moment. But, like, that's that's the case that it, if if this had been brought in four or five years ago, that would have been happening. Yeah. And, like, that's that's a negative feedback loop where a team falls apart. Uh, you know, if, it, if something goes wrong for a club like AC Milan, which it has, like, they deserve what they get. Like, mm. they don't deserve to be given a get-out-of-jail-free card, and that's the same for every club in Europe. It, you yep. know, it's the same for Man United, for Arsenal, for Liverpool, who've all fallen out of the Champions League in yep. the last 10 years. It's the same for Tottenham now that they're falling out of it as well, and we've seen it with mm. Atletico Madrid fell out for a while, and now they're back in it as well, and we've seen it across Europe. Um, And, like, I know that the domestic leagues have pushed against this, and that, I suppose, is the key part of the entire negotiation that's currently going on that we want to avoid. Um, but it is a negative feedback loop as well that 16 teams or 20 teams qualify from the top five leagues because, you know, if you scrape fourth place in the Premier League, you get the revenue that helps you get way more money than, uh, you know, a Celtic or, or a Rangers or a Galatasaray or an Ajax. It helps you have a greater revenue that they just can't compete with. Even though they're winning their leagues or they're coming second in their leagues, like, you know, it becomes, uh, it, it weights it so that fourth in the Premier League is more valuable than winning your domestic league in a, in a so-called smaller Scotland. nation. Scotland, yeah. Yeah, which 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. Like, Celtic were getting no. to the knockout Euro, rounds. You the league. Yeah, they lost to that Porto side we talked about in the previous part. Uh, like Cham- like they Celtic were in the last sixteen of the Champions League se- seven or eight years ago. Apoel yeah. Nicosia were in the quarterfinals in two thousand twelve. Like this was, it's only in recent years. Like last season was the first time ever that the sixteen teams in the last sixteen only came from the top five leagues. We just want a bit of variety. We don't want to see the same teams in there. Like we, you know, it's a European competition. We want it to reflect the fact that it's a European competition. We don't want it to be uh, a top five league and friends competition. You know. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's just not what we watch it for. Um, and I suppose with this new format, we should probably address what it is. It's it's a the Swiss model as well as being called. It's going to be thirty six teams. Uh, you know, it's it's one group. Uh, each team plays ten games, five home, five away. You only play opponents once. So you know, Man United would play PSG at home, but they wouldn't play them away, which is what they did yeah. this year. Um, 
uh, they would play PSG at home, then Leipzig away, then they would play a, a Istanbul away, then they would play a totally different team in the next home game, say. And it w- they would play 10 games, and then the top eight would go straight into a last 16 knockout round. And then the next 16 teams would go into a knockout round. So there would be two last 16 rounds, basically, where uh, the top eight are in. The, the top eight goes straight through. They get a bye, basically. And then the next 16 teams play each other, whittle each other down to another eight. And then the top eight are drawn against the remaining eight. And then yeah. it's a normal last 16 quarterfinal, semifinal, and final, uh, yeah. which is what we're used to. And I assume that would still be two-legged as it is now. Uh, and this excerpt from the athletics piece on this, I thought was was quite interesting and got to kind of the the heart of what the issue here is, is that, and I quote it from the piece now from Matt Slater, it says, the domestic leagues also worried that the Swiss model competitions are inherently scalable. Chess tournaments can run to hundreds of players and you can play as many rounds as you like. What is to stop the rich clubs, the European Club Association, asking for 18 games in 2027 or 34 in 2030? When does the Champions League just become the European Super League? And I think that really strikes at the heart of the issue because, you know, at, for now it could be 10 games. But yeah, exactly. It could be, it could completely wipe out the domestic leagues by going to 34 in, in 2030. Yeah. And it's, it's a sad realization, but like it could be that European Super League be all that's left. And, you know, there, there's a lot of good things American sport does, but I don't think having that, like in, in, in the case of, say, the NFL, I don't necessarily think that's the healthiest for the sport to only have that many teams in the NFL and everyone else not really matter or not really be taken seriously. It kind of devalues everything. And then, like you said, I think it's a very important point. Like eventually AC Milan versus Real Madrid might become Crystal Palace versus Fulham and nobody wants to see that. The thing that really, I suppose, like some people could say, you know, Olympiacos aren't as good as, you know, Tottenham Hotspur. So what? Who cares? But the actual point is that, first of all, yes, it has to, it's a European competition. It has to represent Europe. But there is an actual difference between the product of the Premier League and Syria and La Liga. Like there is a differentiation there. You, you can... You can put on a TV and you can see immediately 22 players in the pitch and you can kind of tell without any other context, oh, I'm watching a Serie A match right now or, oh, I'm watching a Premier League match right now. You know, they are, there are differences uh, as nations in the international game. Like, they are, Italy is credited with having its own unique style of football. Same with the Netherlands, same with Spain, Germany, everyone, Brazil, Argentina, even. Uh, and we see that kind of come through in the club game like the premier league like we always say when a player comes to the premier league like oh they might need an adjustment period of a season to get used to playing in the premier league like the the german league is maybe its closest equivalent where they play like all the teams play a high pressing counter attacking kind of style in spain they play you know the tippy tappa football with a few teams playing a hardcore defensive strategy kick them up kind of hoofball style like there are contrasts and comparisons that could be made that differentiate all the leagues and seeing them come together in a super league would just kind of ruin all that and it would turn what is the lovely rainbow of european football into just a gray box which isn't really all that interesting yeah and oh it's a I don't know why you always make me so sad, Declan. But these <laughs> these stories tend to tend to bring the mood down. Like in 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 short, they really should be positive moves. They should be like, okay, we're going to make this more exciting, more interesting. But it always leads to the same thing that like 
maybe you're going at the wrong problem. <laughs> you know, this isn't a problem. There's other problems that you could take care of first before you start messing with the formats to kind of, you know, maybe discourage the European. Like, if this is the, the point of this is to discourage the European Super League, maybe you have to fix the game itself to stop that being a, a you know, a a, pause, a plausible threat to your, your game. You know, there's there's a reason for it. But, well, you know, I don't we, we, we've spoken enough about this now. I don't just the sadness, you know. What I, I, I do I do want to strike some positivity is that, you know, I do think this format is an interesting idea. Like, it is good that they are coming up with different ideas. Like, the, you know, the 32 team, eight groups of four. Like, it is well-worn. You know, the last few seasons has been a bit uninteresting. We've gone through the reasons why, um, mm-hmm. you know, shaking it up could be interesting. And it is increasing the amount of teams from 32 to 36. If they can find valid reasons to bring in four extra teams and make those four extra teams worthwhile, giving greater representation to the likes of, you know, the other countries in Europe that aren't those big five leagues. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that would be a positive. And, you know, you're right that there are other things that they could do. It is a bit superficial to change the format of the Champions League and be like, this will fix European football's problem. And mm. there there are other interesting ways that they are coming up with to fix European football, like the idea of merging the Belgian uh, and Netherlands leagues, or the Dutch leagues, to one league. Uh, like, that would be an interesting idea, and it would draw attention mm. to those leagues and would help generate revenue, because the problem that we increasingly see is that we have Ajax, okay, they're a giant of the game, they're huge, they win... Um, they win the Eredivisie almost every season. Uh, they compete with PSV and Feyenoord. But then there's a huge drop-off to the rest of the teams. And we see the same same in the Belgian League with Anderlecht and those. And merging them together might actually kind of promote um, promote those teams to be able to compete on a higher footing. And, you know, it could be the same with Celtic. And you could do something with Celtic and Rangers because there is a drop-off to the likes of Aberdeen and Dundee United and Kilmarnock. Like, there are solutions that could be put forward. Like, Hearts what if and Hibs, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, what if we put Scotland and Portugal together, in a way? Like, I think yeah. that could be the future of where it goes. Like, instead of one Super League with 20 teams in it and the domestic leagues are just kind of left to fend for themselves, what if we work together and we create this weird like giant super league pyramid of of putting all the all the leagues together in some weird way uh without having to ruin the domestic leagues or without without having to uh leave the teams left in the domestic leagues completely caught with their pants down and without any like if if you take the big six out of the premier league you are completely ruining the 14 teams that remain because the the reason why the BT and Sky and the international broadcasters pay so much to broadcast the Premier League is because the big six are there. And, you know, the bonus that Leicester are pretty good right now and Everton are doing well and Aston Villa are on the up, like that's just kind of a bonus. But if you're left with just having Leicester and Everton and Aston Villa, the amount of money that those broadcasters are left to pay will drastically go down. And it will leave those teams completely stuck because you can't account for that in your business. You can't go, no. you can't just be like, oh yeah, and uh, in four years' time we're about to lose three quarters of our revenue streams. Like you just can't account for that. Um, mm. So you know there, there, there has to be, and the problem is, is that it just doesn't look like it's going to happen. But if they are to figure things out, they have to get everyone at the table. 
And I do think that they can come up with a solution. Like, there is ways to fix European football. And I don't really have necessary anything against them going to this model. And it could be actually quite interesting of eight teams uh, getting through with a bye and eight other teams being stuck. Like, that could lead to some interesting scenarios where all oh, this team absolutely has to win because they're already stretched to the limit on their squad. And the extra two games will be a huge... Um, strain on their calendar or whatever like there could be good jeopardy there and it could lead to some interesting and it'll freshen up the european game as well but it's the threat of what comes after i suppose is the big problem and i suppose the next decade as i said is yeah. going to be huge for european football who knows maybe we'll be all watching major league soccer in 10 years time i'm so happy believe me i'm so happy happy new year there's midweek action this week, but it's only the FA Cup, so uh, let's go straight to the Premier League. What a, We've got Leicester versus Liverpool, we've got Man City versus Spurs, and we've got Arsenal versus Leeds. Who have you got for all three of those? Let me... So, Man City-Tottenham, I think, will be a clear Man City victory. I think, you know, while not putting the final nail, the coffin of Mourinho's tenure at, uh, at Spurs, I think it will be a... It, it will be a telling sign towards the end. I think the end is nigh there, as as we've discussed, if, if it goes to how I expect it. Now, Tottenham do have it in their power to, to pull something off, and I don't think Man, and Man City can't afford to lose these matches. They are that far ahead at the moment. But yeah, I still think Man City will win it. Leicester-Liverpool, it's a must-win for Liverpool. Leicester City at the moment, you know, their form is inconsistent, I would say, would be the, a nice way of saying it. Like, they're, they've fallen away from their, you know, their, the absolute peak they had when they were atop the league. Um, and yeah, I, I think Liverpool really have to pull something out of the bag in this one. They have midweek off, they they have time to prepare for it, and I think they will. And and if they don't win it, they're in serious danger of, of losing their Champions League space, I think, because it's going to be hard for them to come back from so many consecutive defeats. I know I know Arsenal had something similar earlier in the season, but yeah, Liverpool, it's, it's a much higher bar that they have to meet uh, for that, and maybe Roy Keane would then be right in saying that they were not worthy um, champions, I suppose. What was the other match you wanted a, a scoreline on or a, a, a prediction on? Arsenal versus Leeds. It was nil-nil last time. It was a pretty entertaining game. Two big clubs with a pretty historic rivalry, I would say. Like A thing I haven't spoken about is the expected snow that's going to happen this week. And I believe that that last match, while there wasn't snow, Arsenal playing Leeds, it was pretty horrific conditions. And... Oh, it was up in Yorkshire, up in Leeds that time, but uh, this is going to be at an empty Emirates. I think Arsenal will probably do it because they've been unfortunate in their last two matches. Like We didn't talk much about it, but they, they lost to both um, Aston Villa and uh, Wolves. Uh, like One was, was very much affected by a red card and the other was just affected by Arsenal not really playing very well. But, you know, the, there's an undercurrent there of, of chance creation. And I think... Um, Aubameyang should be back and, and starting the match uh, against Leeds and I think it's a time apt time for him to start scoring again Leeds as well inconsistency has plagued them they will have played uh, a midweek match I believe as well uh, or they're they're playing to as we record aren't they actually mm. um, so you know the, the, and that's against Crystal Palace that'll be enough to leapfrog Arsenal I think over Leeds United but the, you know that that will be, I'd say, their focus of the week. I think the Arsenal match will be a bonus. It's, it's on Sunday, but I think it will be a bonus. The only thing I'd say about Arsenal, because we didn't speak much about them there, was the Odegaard, Martin Odegaard, or Odegaard, Odegaard, however you want to pronounce it. I was thinking about this over the weekend, and it, it, it didn't come up when we were discussing Liverpool earlier, but 
I honestly believe that Arsenal would have much more benefited from having Thiago in their team and Liverpool would much prefer and much benefit from having uh, Udegaard in their team uh, because they're basically both lacking the opposite player. Arsenal needs someone to like do things at the base of midfield and to kind of link play together and bring ball forward while Liverpool probably needs someone to kind of link their attacking players together and, and to really create something out of, out of what the, the component parts that they have rather than just have runners. Um, so, you know, in, in an alternative uh, reality, both teams are doing very well having signed the opposite player. <laughs> yeah, and I love I love when those kind of deals happen where two teams get, you know, decent players, but if they'd swap players, it would have been far better for both. Probably, um, yeah. Uh, I suppose the the big game for me is the, the Leicester-Liverpool one just because of what it means in the table. Um, you mm. know, Leicester... Leicester have a decent record or had a decent record against Liverpool at home, but then Brendan Rodgers came along and oh, yeah. they just kind of seem to fall away for Liverpool every time. Uh, he's got like a he's got a, like a, a devil's deal to never beat Liverpool ever again now or something. Hanging too much over respect him. for the club. He's too much respect for the club. Yeah, yeah. it's like um, uh, not celebrating a goal. That's it's it's Brendan Rodgers' version of that. And and Brendan Rodgers definitely wouldn't celebrate a goal. He'd definitely be that kind of player. Um, mm. But Le- Leicester do lead Liverpool by three points. And then behind Liverpool is Chelsea, just one point behind. And so are West Ham. Uh, and he's just, as you say, Everton have a few games in hand as well. They're three points back. Uh, like This is a pretty big period for Liverpool. After the, or after the Liverpool game, or after the Leicester game, rather, they play Everton. Um, which, like, that's that's two big league games in a row. This is... A pretty big week off for them. They need to really rest up um, because if they lose, they've already lost the last two games. If they lose the next two, yeah, their top four hopes could really be in a yeah. bit of a shambles. They're in a downward spiral at that point, and it'll be very hard for them to come back because you have to imagine that the teams around Liverpool, who who've really, you know, Liverpool have been saved in recent weeks by the fact that, you know, Chelsea, although they're on three games in a row now, they were terrible under the last few weeks of Frank Lampard. West Ham have been dropping points. Everton have been doing their inconsistent best at not overtaking Liverpool. Villa still have those multiple games in hand and have been losing matches every second game. And Arsenal's form kind of collapsed as well, which kind of like that saved Liverpool. They could be well down there now, like down with Spurs in eighth place, like easily, if it weren't for those teams really pulling them out of it. And and if they don't arrest this soon, they're, they're going to be in serious danger of, of really shedding places more than anything else. Yeah, so there's there's plenty of drama and intrigue still to come. You know, we started the show off saying things are kind of fitting into place, but there's still a lot of football to be played over and a loads very of short FA, amount of time. There's loads of FA Cup to happen as well, Declan. If yeah, you, it's um, if you care, you know. No, uh, no I mean, no, is there any is there any draw that kind of stands out for you? No, not really. Like we spoke Man United West Ham in the year 2000 with Fabian Barthez. The rematch is on <laughs> at Old Trafford. I don't know if that's worth much. Uh, we'll see if Paolo shows up and or Fabian Barthez shows up in that match. Uh, yeah, other than that, I don't really see a, a, a great deal of, of intrigue. Wolves, Southampton, two relatively out of form sides in the Premier League playing. Other than that, I can only see Premier League victories all around. Uh, Everton, Tottenham, you know, it's that's the only big Premier League tie I, I would consider. And um, like... Yeah. Tottenham looked like they wanted to lose to Wickham last time out. <laughs> they ended up ramping to a 4-1 victory, but it took a long time for that to happen. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they get dumped out of that as well. Yeah, well, 
all we do know in the next week is that a lot of football will happen and there will be a lot more to talk about as uh, mm. as it all unfolds. Uh, but until then, thank you for being here, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Declan. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to tell your family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. This show can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. You can also subscribe to my own Substack at declanhart.substack.com, where I publish two weekly newsletters that will often go further in-depth on topics discussed during our shows. Those pieces can also be found on Medium at medium.com slash at cheesyheartbun, H-I-R-T-E. You can also follow Andrew on Twitter at combon27 and myself at cheesyheartbun. Most of all, thank you for listening and we hope to be in your download feed next week too. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.